0: Good evening. We will be in John chapter 12 here in a few moments. Uh, I've talked about this before, but I landscaped when I was in Bible school. So that was my side hustle. I used to got to pay the bills. And when I was landscaping, I worked on a crew that... It was run by a Christian guy, but the other guys on the crew were not. Uh, and two of them I became pretty good friends with and then invited them to come to Float Fest, uh, which if, if you've been around North Float Fest is this big summer camping trip, like 200 young adults all the way to Soyuz. And uh, we, have a, we have a good time. So uh, we drove up together, and when we got there, we ran into a young man named Fred, not me, different Fred, uh, who had a tremendous passion for evangelism. Uh, And I think within like two questions, he was like, he talked to my buddies, and he was like, do you know Jesus? And they were like, like, here? I don't know if we've met him. And like, no, 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 like, Jesus, like, to be saved. Have you heard the gospel? And they're like, no. So he jumped in, he shot a shot. And he preached at them and he gave them the good news, right? Where if someone believes in Jesus by faith, they gain eternal life. They're freed from sin, they're freed from death. It is everything for nothing. Best offer a human can ever accept. And my buddies, good Canadian guys, they were very respectful, but profoundly uninterested. Uh, And I have thought about that many, many times because as we drove home three hour drive, we talked about anything but the Bible, anything but religion. They understood the message, but they did not care. It made sense, but it was not compelling. Lots of people hear the gospel and walk away unchanged. Uh, How can we understand that? How should we understand that? And does the Bible give us any data to help us understand the unbelief of some? I think it does. And I think our passage in particular teaches us that only some will believe. That's a big idea for today. Only some will believe. Uh, John chapter 12 reminds us that people are blinded by unbelief and they see or are seeing by the light. So our first point, blinded by unbelief, John chapter 12, starting in verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he, had done so many, or though he had done so many signs before them, before the crowds, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Obviously this passage is jumping into the story part way. Our first phrase is when Jesus had said these things. So he'd obviously said some things and and the story as it goes, if you were here the last couple of weeks, you would know this is now Passion Week. Jesus has entered Jerusalem. Uh, He walked in as people put palm branches down before him, like treating him like a king, reciting lines from Psalm 118. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus rode in on a donkey, fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah 9. So as we're leading up to our passage, there is a palpable tension around Jerusalem. Like, is this the guy? Is this the long-awaited king? And people had come from all over the Mediterranean world because it was Passover week. And there was, Passover was a pilgrim feast. It meant people from all over Palestine would come to Jerusalem and then even the Mediterranean world. So there could have been as many as a million people in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. So many people. And there's this energy around this Jesus. A mixed crowd. In the, last, in the last few verses, if you were here last week, you would know that some Greeks even came. And they came to Philip, one of the disciples, and said, like, introduce us to Jesus. We've heard about this man. We wanna see him for ourselves. So there's this energy And you get the impression as you're hearing Jesus before our passage, that he's gonna capitalize on the moment, right? The time is now to look upon the sun and believe. Uh, Listen to this phrase from John 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. You feel the energy. Jesus is preaching boldly for people to convert. Verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So we're thinking like this is about to be the greatest revival in the history of like humanity, right? Like a bunch of people, maybe a million people are gonna turn. But then verse 36 has a crazy plot twist. Uh, Jesus departs and hides himself. That's what, it, that's what it says. After he said these things, he departed and hid himself. And we have to ask like Why? Like, it doesn't make sense in the story that all of the momentum is drawing people in to hear Jesus. And there has already been an energy around him because he's preached and he's done miracles. But the reality of the, the people in those crowds was they did not believe. Like, they heard some stuff about Jesus. They sang some songs to Jesus, but they didn't believe he was the savior of the world or they wouldn't have crucified him. So John is looking at that, reflecting on that reality. And he's like, well, they, they, don't, they did not believe, verse 37. And then he makes this observation in verse 38. Well, actually they, they could not believe. It seems like there was something deeper going on. John is trying to answer the question of Jewish unbelief. Why did so many Jewish people, well-educated, people who knew God's word, people who had been awaiting a Messiah for 400 years, why did they reject Jesus? How do they miss it? Uh, I remember when I was in Bible school, I had a professor ask us in, in class, it was a class called Bible background. So we were learning about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes, like all this background history to Jewish customs and second temple Judaism. And he asked us, the professor, if you were there, like if you were in that crowd and you were, you know, a teenager or a little boy or a little girl, like, would you have believed? And every single one of us said yes. Like how could they miss it? Jesus preached. He said wild things like I and the father are one, believe in me and have eternal life. And then he performed miracles and he multiplied bread. Like there is no way anyone could have missed it. And then the professor kind of humbled us because he was like, you know what's crazy? Uh, The Jewish little boys and little girls or teenagers or adults that heard him knew way more Bible than any of you. They would have memorized it since they were six years old. So it was not ignorance that prevented their unbelief. And John has to look at the reality and he's asking the same question. Why did they not believe? Jesus was right there. Why did they miss it? So he gives us two causes, a human agency and a divine agency. There are two causes for unbelief. Uh, The first one is what he calls fear of the Pharisees, verse 42. Uh, And the Pharisees, as as I've mentioned already, were a religious group of people. Uh, They were like a political party in, in a sense, like we have today. And they had a way of interpreting the Bible. They were wildly popular among the people. And they had tremendous influence. So this group of people was well thought of and anyone they approved of was honorable. So when we see that phrase, fear of the Pharisees, I think we can very quickly fill in the meaning of fear. And we think like, ew, spider. Or, oh no, it's too dark outside. And I heard a noise, right? Like emotional fear. Like I, I'm curious or I'm, I'm afraid that something bad's gonna happen to me. But fear in this context, I think is much more akin to the way the Old Testament uses the word. Uh, where fear is a mixture of both awe and need. Right, awe in that like I, I want, to, I'm drawn to, to someone or something. I need something from this being. Uh, the scriptures actually speak this way of God, where fear of God is considered a, a virtue, that all of us have a, a need from God. We need his approval, we need his acceptance, uh, we need the life that he offers. And then as we approach him, we are awed by his glory. It is a good thing to fear God. Proverbs 1.7 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So when we fear God, when we're in awe of him, when we're drawn to him, it leads us to the good life. But the human condition is that because of sin in our hearts, we often fear man, where the, th- the awe and the need we have for God gets transferred to people. We know we need God, but we will settle for a counterfeit. And the fear of the Pharisees, I think, is that kind of thing. Uh, There's a great book about this idea uh, written by a man named Ed Welch. The book is called When People Are Big and God Is Small. And he's trying to give us a little bit more accessible language for describing fear. And he uses the phrase rejection fear. When we need something from someone, when we crave their approval and they withhold it, that's actually a powerful motivating factor for us. If we need something from someone, we will act in a way to get that thing that we want from them. So the Pharisees could give approval and everyone wanted it. Everyone needed it. So John, as he's looking at these crowds of Jewish people who did not believe, makes the observation like, oh my goodness, they they were motivated by rejection fear. They did not want to be cast out, right? It's very obvious he means this. In the next verse, verse 42, being put out of the synagogue was the thing they were most afraid of. The re, There were people that believed in Jesus, but they did not confess it because they didn't wanna be kicked out of the synagogue, right? The center of Jewish religious life, not just religious life, but cultural life and social life was the synagogue. Everything you did was part of this, or was in this building, in this institution. So being cast out meant total rejection. You lost everyone, you were alone. And no Jewish person wanted to be alone. No one wants to be alone. So by, because of fear of the Jews and the fear of being cast out of the synagogue, no one would confess faith in Jesus. And then he gives a second reason. Verse 43, uh, they love the glory that comes from men. Uh, All of us want to be well thought of. Like every single person wants approval and acceptance. Uh, We don't generally want it from all people, but there is a group of people, unique to each one of us, where we want their praise. We want them to speak well of, think well of us. And if they don't, it is tremendously wounding. The Pharisees were this for Jewish people, So if someone believed in Jesus and the person that most, like they craved approval from the most, withheld that approval, they would be tremendously wounded. Uh, My Pharisees, which I guess is a terrible illustration, is young adults. Uh, I'm the young adult pastor, so I want the approval of the young adult people I minister to. I don't think they'll listen to me if they think I'm dumb. So I want them to like me. So sometimes I withhold my unpopular opinions. Uh, but there's n- not only young adults in here. So I'm going to share one of these unpopular opinions. Here goes. <clears throat> I think Taylor Swift is wildly overrated. Uh, her music is mid. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And mid means just okay if you're over 30. Uh, and actually, I'll go one step further. Uh, I think she's only dating Travis Kelsey to stay relevant. Uh, she hasn't dropped an album in like three minutes. So she's afraid we'll forget about her. Change my mind. So obviously, I don't share this with all young adults because they would crucify me, right? Taylor Swift is T. Swift, right? Like everyone knows her, everyone loves her, everyone listens to her music. I don't share this view because I don't wanna be rejected by young adults. This is a tiny example of the craving for approval that Jewish people had from the religious leaders, from the Pharisees. And if someone were to say, I think Jesus is the Messiah. I'm gonna follow him. They would be cast out of the synagogue and the Pharisees would say, you're blind. You you, you don't understand anything. You're an idiot. Get out of here. No person wanted to be cast out or receive like vitriol rather than praise from the Pharisees. Fear of man, the need for approval from them was a powerful motivation for people not to believe in Jesus. But there's something a little deeper than that. John looks at the reality of Jewish unbelief and says, well, for some of them, that's absolutely true, but it doesn't make sense that everyone, so many people, not everyone, but so many people would reject Jesus. Like, why? And he did what any good God-fearer does when they have a question. He opened his Bible and he worked through the scroll of Isaiah and in the prophecies of Isaiah, he found some answers to the question of unbelief. So we're gonna circle back, John 12, 38. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is a quote from Isaiah 53, which for Christians is something we often read kind of around Christmas, right? He's the suffering servant. You know, it, we, uh, a couple years ago, we preached to first Peter and it's quoted there, right? By his wounds, we are healed. Christians know this passage to be about Jesus. But Jewish people, didn't really understand this passage. And as John is looking at it, he's like actually what's interesting is this passage says that this servant that God raises up will be rejected by the people he is sent to. Verse 50 or verse 1 of Isaiah 53 is a rhetorical question. Who has believed? Like no one has believed. That's the problem. God raised up salvation and the people rejected it. And as John looks at the reality around him, he's like, oh my goodness, this is exactly what's happening. But he wants to know why. That that just tells him what. He wants to know why are people rejecting the salvation of God? John 12, 39. He, God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal him. I would heal them. Uh, This is a quote from Isaiah 6 where we learn that God hardens the heart of rebellious people. This is Isaiah's ministry call, probably the most depressing job offer of all time. Uh, God says, I'm gonna raise you up. You're gonna go and preach. The people will hate you. They will hate your message. And ultimately, they'll cast you aside. Congratulations, you've been chosen for this. And Isaiah's like, here I am, Lord, send me, and, and does it but a a really uncomfortable mission for this man. He has to go and preach to people who, according to Isaiah chapter six, God is hardening their hearts. They won't believe, they won't turn. Uh, And this is a moment where we interact with a very challenging biblical truth. uh, The idea of what theologians call judicial hardening, where God can and does harden people's hearts so that they continue, in their unbelief. When we try to answer the question of why don't people believe, I think there's a pretty basic Christian answer, right? People don't believe because they're sinners. Like that's, that's the foundational answer. Where when a person is in sin, as all of us are born into, uh, we dislike being told what to do. So the human condition is God says, follow me. And the human condition is to say, no thanks. I will, I'll do my own thing, I'll do what I want. So yes, sin causes unbelief, but even more than that, what Isaiah 6 reminds us is God can and does enable people who already don't believe to continue in that unbelief for a purpose. The best example I can give you from scripture is from Exodus, the book of Exodus. In the character of Pharaoh, when Moses first comes to Pharaoh and gives him the famous line like, let my people go. Pharaoh's response is remarkably candid and rebellious. He, who is Yahweh that I should listen to him? And you, you feel that or You're like, oh my goodness, like the arrogance of this man, that he would call out God asking for a fight. And then we're told over the next 10 chapters, they have a fight. And as God delivers 10 plagues on this man, he, we're also told six different times that God hardens his heart. That Pharaoh at any point could have turned, could have changed his mind, but God hardened his heart so that he wouldn't. The Bible teaches us that God can and does harden people's hearts so they will not change their mind. I think this is a jarring idea. It throws us off our game a little bit. We're like, whoa, this picture of God, I was not expecting. And this is one of those moments where we kind of look at the Bible again, and we're like, maybe my translation got it wrong. Like, please help me. Is there any way to understand this, where God doesn't harden people's hearts? I need some help. And I think there's a few kind of rebuttals or challenges people will raise. Uh, the first one being, how is this fair? Like, how is it fair that God would choose some people and harden their hearts so they don't believe, and then others He would simply allow to just keep doing their own thing? Like, they actually can change their mind. Like. How how is that fair? Why does God get to do whatever he wants? Well, scripture speaks to this. Psalm 115, verse three, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The argument in Psalm 115, as it compares Yahweh to idols, is that Yahweh, or God the Father, is both wise enough to make a really good plan and powerful enough to carry out that plan. So God does what he wants because God is working out his sovereign and wise plan. And then I think the follow-up question is, okay, so God makes the rules. So I guess God is doing this because he thinks it's wise. Uh, If God is doing this, I think God is bad. Like that picture of God is gross. I don't want that God. That's not the God that I worship. That's not my Jesus, right? We're asking the question, is God still good? And scripture speaks to this one too. Psalm 119 verse 68, the psalmist says, you, God, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The argument is that God's character is good, and because his character is good, his actions are good, and his character and actions are so good that if we follow his law, his statutes, our life will be good. He will lead us into an abundant life. That's how good God is. Scripture challenges our conceptions and reminds us that God is always working, even through really, really hard things even through things that we don't really understand, through plans that we think, "Ah, that's pretty wicked, Lord. Like someone is suffering, someone is hurting. God, what are you doing? And probably the best example of God working through wicked circumstances is actually the story of Jesus. Where in the story of Jesus, we have an innocent man dying so that guilty sinners can go free. If we ask the same questions, how is this fair? How is this good? I I think we're challenged in that moment. We're like, what is God doing? But when we step back a little and let God be God and we stay in our lane, then we look at that question. We say, well, you know, actually it, I don't, it, it's obviously painful. It's obviously difficult for Jesus. But in God doing this, we see his wise and sovereign plan in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. It was a good thing that Jesus would die. Like the gospel of John t- tells us in two chapters earlier that it is beneficial that one man should die so that the nation could live. So God's plans are good. So if God is still fair, if God is still good, but John is still asking, oh, pardon me. John is still asking that question, why don't people believe? And we're tracking with his argument. I think there's one kind of stone left unturned. What about free will? If God hardens hearts and there are people that God is empowering to continue in their unbelief, what if those people didn't want to continue in their unbelief? How does that reconcile with human choices? So what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about human free will. So I have a handy-dandy little chart behind me, uh, and I'm gonna draw uh, the two options that philosophers have argued about to describe human free will. So these circles are human will. Will is not a person, but rather a human's ability to choose. Uh, There is what's called libertarian free will or compatibilist free will. A libertarian free will is not to be confused with the political philosophy, that's a different thing. In this situation, I'm talking about the way that people make choices. So libertarian free will is what's called the power of contrary choice. So for a choice to be truly free, a person has to have the ability to either say yes or no to that choice. That's how it works. Option two is what's called compatibilist free will. Compatibilist free will is the argument that people make choices in accordance to their desires, right? The power of desire. All of us choose things that match up with what it is that that we most want. Compatibilist, or sorry, libertarian free will functions like a wall. There are external factors that are trying to influence our choices, but nothing can get through this wall. Our choices are always simply a matter of yes, or no, and you have to be able to have both choices or you are not free in that choice. Uh, Compatible free will actually is more like gates where there are little entrances that desires can actually get in. And actually there are also desires inside of us that affect our will, that affect the choices we make. Uh, these two different understandings of will uh, are hotly debated. So what I wanna do is let's bring it into the real world. Philosophy is good but it only really helps us if it actually works in our real lives. So I want to give you a case study. Uh, the shirt that I'm wearing today, how did Freddie choose this shirt? Obviously, Freddie needed to wear a shirt. You're not allowed to preach naked, so I need a shirt. Uh, and I chose it. So which, which version of free will is an accurate portrayal of how I made this choice? If it is libertarian free will, uh, what I did is I walked into my closet. There's like eight shirts that are hanging. I looked at all of them and I had a yes or no decision to make on every single shirt. And for seven shirts, I said no. And when I got to shirt number eight, I said yes. I put it on, no one else influenced me. I drove here after I put the shirt on and now I'm preaching. Anyone who is married knows that that is not how decisions are made. Uh, Particularly if you are a married man, amen. Uh, So what actually happened is I came out of the room and I was wearing my favorite polo, this burgundy program with little blue polka dots. And my wife said, ew, what are you doing? And then I freely made the choice to change my shirt uh, in no way, in no way affected by my wife's opinions of me. Uh, And then I chose another shirt, which my wife kind of did this to. And I said, actually, I don't like this shirt. And then I chose a third shirt, which is the one I'm wearing. And my wife gave me a wink and I was like, okay, this is the shirt that I should wear. Uh, So obviously my wife's opinion of me is a tremendously motivating factor. But even more than that, I knew that I was gonna roast Taylor Swift. So I needed to look like presentable so the young adults wouldn't hate me. If I'm a drippy boy, they'll still receive me. So there are, it's not just my wife. There's also desires of the way that I'm perceived by people I really value. Libertarian free will doesn't make sense of even a choice as simple as the shirt I put on. Compatibilist will does. And what compatibilist free will is trying to say is that all of us simply do what we want. So if God is to harden a person, God is in no way overriding their free will as long as that person is still pursuing the thing they most want. So the question for us is, what does the natural person most want? I'm glad you asked. If you go back to John chapter three, what we're told, So obviously John chapter three, everyone thinks John 3, 16, God so loved the world, famous verse. But what follows is the people lived in darkness. And it's not just that you are in darkness. Verse 19 tells us they loved the darkness and hated the light. The most compelling natural desire for a human who has not been saved is that they want to do their own thing. They do not want the light. Right? All of us, our natural condition is we're fast asleep, and when someone shines a flashlight on your face and you're fast asleep, you slap that flashlight away. Right? That's what we do. We don't want the light, we love the darkness. I was trying to make it more accessible. It's very much like, you know, we have a, a, a big family. My wife has lots of cousins, or she has lots of siblings, lots of nieces and nephews, and these teenagers, just sleep. That's all they do. And when you walk into the teenager's room, because you're like, it's 11 o'clock, like it's time to get up, and you flick on the light, they have the Smeagol reaction. They're like, ah, hurts us, hurts us, turn it off, right? That's the human condition. When Jesus shows up and says, believe in me, people say, hurts us, turn it off. They're not interested in the light because they live in darkness and they love the darkness When God hardens people, he's not doing anything to override their own choices. He's empowering to continue in their choice. And that is God's prerogative. God is in the heavens. He can do whatever he pleases. People are blinded by unbelief. What is interesting is even though people are blinded by unbelief and even though God hardens some, the ministry of Jesus was to proclaim the gospel To all people, he made no distinctions. He did not differentiate between hardened people and unhardened people. He simply said, uh, If you have ears, hear what I have to say, believe in me. And even in our passage, we read things like, While you have the light, believe in the light. In verse 44, believe in me and the one who sent me. Jesus offered eternal life and an escape from total darkness. Why would we do any different? So if you are here and you are still in darkness, and as you hear this message, you're starting to think, you know what, maybe there is light. Maybe I have misunderstood things. Maybe I wasn't in a place where I could hear before, but something is changing. I'm feeling something change. You can come to Jesus. You can believe in him. Uh, The gospel is for all people. It's offered to all people because God calls all people to repent and believe in Jesus. We are blinded by unbelief, but the gospel is offered to all people. Jesus' ministry was helping spiritually blind people see, and the way that they see is by the light. We see by the light. John 12, Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep him keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come into the world to judge it, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me himself gave me this commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. uh, It's appropriate that this unit, this text unit, begins with, Jesus cried out. That phrase is a public declaration. Jesus is saying, I believe in me to all people, whether they're hardened or not. The gospel is proclaimed the same to every person. And Jesus is saying, Come right? John chapter one, it reminded us or taught us that this was what Jesus would do. So it makes sense that he would say this. John chapter one, verse five, light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Nothing was going to stop the ministry of Jesus. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus offers salvation, offers eternal life to all people. He speaks the words of the father according to verse 50. But as Jesus is turning now, it's the end of chapter 12. This is his final appeal. These six verses are his last public words before he turns inward and speaks only to his disciples in John 13 to 17. In these last words, we have a tremendous summary of the entire preaching ministry of Jesus, the previous three, three and a half years. Uh, Jesus tells us, believe in him, verse 44. Jesus tells us, hear my words and keep them, verse 47. Uh, Jesus tells us, I speak with the authority of the Father, verse 49. Everything Jesus earlier proclaimed is summarized in this passage. Jesus' mission was to tell people about himself, believe in me. And as he spoke, he accurately defined faith as more than just belief, it also led to action. And then he consistently presented himself as not a lone ranger, but as part of the Trinity. He worked in accordance with the Father, in accordance with the Father's will. He spoke the Father's words. He did the Father's works. Everything Jesus ever taught is summarized in these six verses. But in our last four minutes, I'm only gonna choose one. And that one comes to us from verse 47, where in verse 47, we have a clear explanation of saving faith, saving faith, is hearing the words of Jesus and doing them, hearing and doing. Uh, The reason Jesus can claim this is because ideas have consequences. Uh, If I asked you all to stand up and jump, uh, I mean, it'd be weird, but if you did it, you would do it because you are 100% convinced that gravity is is in effect. Like if you jump, you will come back down to earth. You won't hit your head on the ceiling. No one jumps that high, right? And you're not going to go out to space. When you all walked in, I did not see a single person test the integrity of their seat. Uh, You seem to believe that it can hold your weight. So you all just sat down. When you believe something, it directly impacts the actions that you take. That's how faith works. So Jesus will teach if you hear his words and you believe them, you obey him. Jesus speaks to the people who are following him in Luke chapter six, and he says this, why do you call me Lord, Lord? and not do what I tell you, right? Because there are people like what we've encountered in John chapter 12 that can throw the palm branches down and sing the songs and hear the words of Jesus. But when it comes to doing, they fall far short. What is saving faith? It is hearing the words of Jesus and acting and doing something. One of the best examples I can share with you from the gospel of John is the story of Nicodemus where when we first meet this man in John chapter three, he appears as a genuine seeker, someone who is interested, but who obviously does not yet believe in Jesus. So he's asking fundamental questions. And then when we hear about him again in John chapter seven, it's during an inner debate between the Sanhedrin, so this council of Jewish leaders, and Nicodemus defends Jesus by saying, like if, if he's working in accordance with God's will, like we're not gonna stop him. And if he's not, he'll fade away, he's a nobody. So he seems to believe certain things about Jesus. He he seems a little bit warmer to him. But then we get to chapter 12 and verse 42, we read that many people did not confess their faith in in him out of fear of the Pharisees. So Nicodemus had not yet confessed his faith in Jesus. And that's a great theme if you're ever interested to try to trace through the book of John. Does Nicodemus ever make the full jump? right? And, And he's a great example because people struggle to do that. We hear the words of Jesus, but it's much harder to obey. If Nicodemus struggled and thousands of Jewish people struggled in John's day, what hope do you and I have to hear the words of Jesus and obey? Well, we actually have great hope uh, because verse 47 reminds us uh, Jesus gives second chances. It doesn't say Jesus gives second chances. It says, for anyone who hears my words and does not do them, I do not judge him. What Jesus is saying is there is still time. All of you who have heard and have not yet obeyed, who have heard and have not yet followed Jesus, Jesus isn't here to judge you. He's here to call you to himself. That that day will come. He talks about the last day and then there will be judgment. But until that day or until your last day, you have time. That's a tremendously hopeful thing and a reminder that God is gracious towards sinners in a general sense and that the gospel is offered to all people, but God is gracious towards Christians in a particular way in that when we sin, God is not angry or disapproving of us. We all sin. When we sin, Jesus says, I do not judge you and reminds you, you now have an opportunity to hear and obey, to hear and follow him. Jesus' mission was helping the spiritually blind see. And that included non-Christians becoming Christians. And then for those who are Christians, it includes seeing yourself accurately. If we're gonna see by the light, I think every Christian has to be serious about repenting of sin. That has to be a part of our Christian life. Uh, there are two outcomes God desires for his people in, a, in, you know, in following up on this saving faith of 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 hearing and doing, the first is self-examination. For you to even be willing to admit that there is something you're not obeying, you would have to consider all the things you've heard. You have to spend some time in self-reflection. You have to look in the mirror and say, who am I? What am I living like? What am I doing with my life? And if you do that, I think every single one of us will see some level of darkness. That we'll see something in us where I'm like, no, I know what God says, I just don't like it. Or I've heard what some people think the Bible says about this one thing, but I I think they're wrong. Every single one of us struggles to obey in various ways. And when we come across a passage like this, it's a reminder, if saving faith means hearing and doing, that we have to be serious about doing. And when we fail to do, we repent. Jesus gives us a second chance and we start doing again. We hear and we obey Jesus. I wanna end by going back to the story of, of the young guys I used to landscape with. Uh, they heard the gospel, they were very polite, but they were profoundly uninterested. Uh, but three years later, one of them reached out to me. Uh, he had a lot of life changes, he had a kid now, and uh, he was looking at the world around him, at the madness of crowds, and he was afraid. He, he was afraid to raise his little one. He was afraid, he lacked purpose, and he was like, I, I don't know where to go, I don't know what to do, do you know anything that would help? And I was like, oh my, Jesus, I do know something that would help. Are you kidding me? Come here, let's meet. And we met, and we met a couple of times, and I said basically the same things that Fred had said three years earlier. The difference was the light turned on this time. And this man, not in front of me, like, but he, he, he believed. And he texted me, he's like, hey, I've said the prayer. I want to follow Jesus. Like, I'm, I'm in. I'm, I'm in for this Christian thing. And I remember thinking like, what earth? how did this happen? You were, were so uninterested. You didn't care at all. you were very nice, but you didn't care. But now something changed where you were like, no, no, no. I'm willing to dramatically alter my life because I believe in Jesus. He saw by the light. What this passage reminds us of is that there will always be people who believe. I wanted to end with this because my fear is that some of you will hear this and you will learn about the hardening of hearts that God can do and does do. And you'll walk away thinking, the people that I know that don't believe, they're doomed. They have no hope. What am I supposed to do? Oh, I should even pray for them. Like, I guess there's no hope. But that's a mistake because the point I'm trying to make is that there will always be people who believe, The not human condition is that people don't want to believe. They're in darkness. They love the darkness, but God will always work in the weirdest of ways in timings that we don't like. And there will be people that come out of darkness and step into the light and follow Jesus. Only some will believe. Why not you? Let me pray for us. And then we're gonna move into a time of communion. Father God, thank you for this day. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity to preach and share this message with your church that there will always be some who believe. Lord, we know there were some hard truths in this passage, things that we struggle to comprehend or, or to accept, but in it, we're also reminded of the hope we have in you, that you give light to people in darkness, people who love darkness and hate the light. So Father, I pray that you would do that work. That if there are people here that have not yet believed, that you would put pressure on them, that the light would shine. And even though they don't like the flashlight on their face, that they would see the light and turn and be saved. Uh, For the people in our lives that don't believe, Father, I pray the same thing would happen. We ask you to move and work and do the work that only you can do. For the rest of us, Father, those who are already Christians, I pray that we would repent of sin as we see it revealed by your light. Uh, We all have a long way to go, but by your grace, Father, we're given second chances and we can walk with you. Help your people along the way. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.